0: It's amazing how if you look at the top priorities of most governors in the country, almost all of them have fixing the DMV in their top 10. And it's not because the people at DMV did like anything wrong or were bad or didn't do their job. It's just hard to process all that paper. Right. There's so many things that come through the DMV your driver's license, your titling records, your, your voter registration in some states, like so many pieces of paper plow through there. And there's only so much time in the day people can only process so much and paper leads to errors because people fill it out incorrectly. They they get lazy and forget to check a box and then they have to circle back or it gets denied and they got to wait in line again. And it's not always the government's fault but now there are tools that are available to make it better and we're making one of those tools, right? To fix title and registration across the country.
1: Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the lay of the land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I'm your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today we are covering a problem I personally care quite a lot about. I have a general affinity for those working to close the gap between the ubiquity of technology in people's everyday lives and the relative lack of it in the government supporting those people, which is why it was awesome to have Shane Bigelow on the podcast today. Shane has worked for 20 plus years now on all sides of investment and entrepreneurial worlds, from working for a family office to starting his own company, being part of the sale of a public company, structuring and selling financial instruments for another public company, building up a client base of entrepreneurs to whom he provided investment management advice, running part of AB Bernstein's business in the US to being CEO and helping to found Champ Titles which is a startup based here in Cleveland, which has raised over 10 million in capital and is focused on digitizing the process of vehicle titling between the state government, insurance carriers, financial institutions, auto dealers, and consumers by creating a legal digital title that is easily transferable and verified. I really enjoyed this conversation very much, and I hope you all do as well. So I was thinking about where to start this. And I, I remember connecting with Bo, Shim, and Ian Lewis, maybe back at the first Blockland conference a few years back. And they really kind of painted this very ambitious vision to me of how Champ Titles was going to kind of jettison this archaic car title process and pull it into the modern world. And, and I've been left with the vision since then. And so I've been excited to have you on to kind of paint the full picture, if you will, from inception of that idea to the work you're doing today to that vision and maybe how it has evolved since then. So I think it's very cool, the the space that you guys are in and excited to, to learn how it's all transpired. Well, thanks. And thanks for not stealing our idea, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> appreciate
0: another tech entrepreneur just being intrigued by what we were trying to build. And Bo and Ian are crucial to that. They're fantastic engineers.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's let's dive in a little bit here. Um, I'd love to understand, you know, your your path to to champ titles and and the work you're doing, and and really to the the broader world of of entrepreneurship. I'd love if you could just kind of paint a picture of of how it is that that you came into to this role and the path that that you took to to get there.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well. It, it actually goes back to my first software company. I had started a software company a little over 20 years ago out in California. I had written an algorithm to help banks more efficiently process their loan and lease portfolios. And as a result, that was primarily around car loans. Uh, I became familiar with the problem of automotive titling. You know, We sold that company. And as I say, there's no Ferrari in the driveway because of that one, but, uh, but things <laughs> were well enough. And Wound up at another software company, and and we sold that one to Cisco Systems, and and I wound up in the financial financial arm of Cisco Systems, one of the investment arms called Cisco Capital, and that got me recruited away to Wall Street, and uh, I wound up being on Wall Street for a lot longer than I thought, about thirteen years. But as, as part of the role there, there were two things that I picked up that are germane to to this company or directly germane. That is, one was looking at. Uh, the securitization of auto loans, and you know this is 15 years after that first software company. I'm looking at the way that auto loans get securitized, uh, similar to the way homes get securitized. There's a lot of paper documentation need to be looked at, reviewed, understood. What those loans might look like if you bought them in a bucket, and with car loans, it got me exposed to titling again. And lo and behold, 15 years later, nothing had changed about titling. Not a not a singular thing. Literally, it was all exactly the same. <laughs> Sort of like store that away and say, well, something's wrong there, but, you know, I'm busy doing this Wall Street thing. I can't really fix that, but that's interesting. Then I got exposed to blockchain and I looked at blockchain. We were we were looking at the way to uh, keep asset registries all around the world for different assets that we might lend against. And I started digging into it and I was really intrigued by the way that blockchain is, I think, just the most superior ledger that exists anywhere in the world today. I think it's the most secure a mutable place you can go to store data and have a, a, a system of record that is uh, more highly useful than a traditional database. And that got me intrigued. And And then I, I wound up moving from New York out to Cleveland and, and met a guy that many people know out here, a fellow named Bernie Moreno. And Bernie was an automotive retailer. And you know he had a, lar- a, a large chain of dealerships uh, in the Midwest and up and down parts of the East Coast. And he and I became friends and always talking about different things we might do together. And when he was getting ready to leave the automotive world and I was ready to depart from Wall Street, we kept talking about, well, what could we do you know, together? And we set a few parameters on it. We said, well, first, we want to be able to have a, a company that has really high barriers to entry, but the barriers didn't necessarily need to be money. They needed to be knowledge. It had to be something that you really had to know and understand deeply. And the second one was that it had to be something that you know, you could apply software rules to that, you know, it hadn't been touched by software in a material way. And that was really due to the margins that are available in software. And, and third, it had to be something that would bring a process back to people that would benefit them, that would actually drive maybe paper inefficiency out of something they were doing and make their lives better. And that was important to us because we, we both had a pretty good run professionally and we felt like this was a way to not only give back, but if we gave back appropriately, you know, the the company would do well and our employees would do well and our investors would do well. And so we kept circling around on different ideas and eventually came to car titling and, you know, circle back all of that stuff from (laughs) 15 years prior. And then I guess at that point, almost 20 years prior. And we realized that car titling hadn't been touched in that way. And we decided that we should reimagine the way titling gets done. And that's really the background of me and how I got involved. And ultimately what we decided to Found together, and and he's been chairman of the board, and and not really operating in the business. But I'm I'm CEO and and operating the business.
1: So when when you were thinking through the barriers to entry, and it you know not necessarily on the capital side like you were mentioning, but this kind of expertise, it raised this idea. I remember Peter Thiel kind of talking about the idea of like the earned secret as kind of the source for a lot of startup ideas and inspiration. And it it sounds like with your background and with Bernie's background, the expertise there really is in that space in a way that I think most of us as just people who go in cars are not going to have the the depth of experience there. So what would you describe as kind of that earned secret that, that that you unearthed? And I'd love, in addition to that, if you could kind of paint a picture of the whole title industry, and and we can cover that one after. Yeah, sure. So
0: I'm not as familiar with what Peter Thiel was saying with the yearn seeker, but I can, I can, I think guess most of, of, of what it is. So, uh, for any Peter Thiel loyalists, if I get this wrong, don't, uh, don't beat me up too much on social media. But what was stunning to us as we started talking about the idea was that most people just presumed that titling was already digitized. That there was already a way to fill out a form online and have your title move around. And if you want to sell your car, you could fill out a form on some state portal and do that. Or if you were a state, you must have systems that had a really good system of record to keep track of this. And there's no possible way people would possibly deploy paper for this. But in Ohio alone, there are 18 million pieces of paper that are used every year to process titles. 18 million. That's like hundreds or thousands of trees. I, I did the math once. I can't remember off the top of my head. it's <laughs> trees. And so, you know, there is there are these like odd little quirks about this environment of, uh, around titling, this ecosystem around titling, where everyone's sort of just taken for granted that this is the way it had to be done, that it had to be done in paper. And they were sort of always just accepting of whatever state process was put in front of them, never really thinking through that, well, could we apply... A layer of technology on top of the state process and could we make it better for consumers and and also you know states to their credit they actually were updating a lot of their technology and it it hasn't been getting used in the right way the ecosystem around it hadn't had a reason to necessarily shift their somewhat antiquated paper-based processes so we started to analyze and show to cfos and others that are buyers of our services well here's what this is costing you What if we could do it better, faster, cheaper? And that's kind of the the value proposition. If you think about titling in general, you know, so accepting real estate for a minute. So park real estate to the side. We're talking about movable assets, you know, boats, planes, cars, primarily pontoon boats, ATVs, what have you, anything that has to be titled. In the movable asset world, the title becomes important because, That's how people indicate ownership, right? That and you have the keys to whatever the asset is, right? It's pretty hard to disprove ownership if you're holding the keys and the title. If you have one or the other, it's also pretty hard to disprove it. But the the problem with titling is that it's not a a national system. There is no national system in the United States for titling. It's a 51 jurisdiction issue, 50 states plus Washington, D.C., so you really don't have to be an expert in any one place. Like if you're a car dealer and you're in, say, Cleveland, you probably sell cars to Michigan, Pennsylvania, Indiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, and maybe Florida for your, for people that go back and forth in the wintertime. So you have to know those five or six states. But if you're, say, Carvana, you buy a car in California, you want to know how to sell it in New Jersey the next day. That national knowledge set is not something that, Companies really own or or, or hold. And so we sought out to reimagine the way that we could use the rules. We had enough knowledge because of our presence across finance and automotive retail to be able to pull that together. And we were able to hire some great technologists that are a lot smarter than me uh, to be able to build out the technology.
1: So it already sounds complicated enough, but to add fuel to the fire, there are a lot of disparate parties at play in this whole ecosystem. It's not just the governments that are are part of this whole ecosystem you have the consumers themselves the insurance companies retailers the the financing of it who are all the the players and you know before we kind of get into champ titles and, and your approach just to kind of set the stage for for everyone that's really involved with this this process
0: yeah so if you, if you think about the title ecosystem it's not only the consumer or the company that buys the asset, take a take a car, right? It's not just the consumer, it's not just Hertz that might own a fleet of cars. It's the lender that that let that gave them the money to go buy that fleet of cars because the lender actually owns your car until you pay off your loan. Most people like to say, oh, it's my car. It's not, it's your bank's car. <laughs> and they're just letting you use it until you pay off your loan. So the title actually sits with the bank. Then there's the insurance carrier who wants to make sure that they're insuring a vehicle that's owned by the right asset, the right entity. Then there are the retailers themselves who sell the car and need to interact with the title paperwork because in order to transfer ownership of a titled asset, the retailer needs to be engaged in properly retitling the car. And then there's the the state. The state is the system of record. It has been, always will be, you know, until we are no longer a republic. Where the states have rights and the Tenth Amendment goes away, which you know I hope it never does. I love this country and I love the fact that we have a Tenth Amendment. That means states have rights and states get to be that system of record for assets like that. Uh, so that's pretty much the the whole ecosystem
1: in a nutshell. Uh, yeah. Before we we dive into to the work you're doing, I, I just want to take a quick detour. I'm just kind of curious your perspective on it. Going back to that idea of the innovation and in technology within the government space. I'm curious why you think there is this chasm between the ubiquity of technology in people's everyday lives and the kind of dearth of it you see in, in the government institutions that are, are kind of working to support them. And not to your point, you know, there, there was an effort to deploy technology, but, but why is it not quite there in the way that, that you see it in, in every other industry?
0: Oh, I, I, you know, thankfully, uh, I think our government in, in general does a pretty good job of you know, supplying a path to work with it. It may not always be the most efficient path that we as businesses would want. I'm going to quote a, a leader here in Ohio that I, I think has the right vision for these things. It was our lieutenant governor, John Husted. He says, I, I want to make sure I get government out of the way of business. Right? It doesn't want to take government away from regulating business or make sure business is doing fair and, and just things for consumers but to get government out of the way of business. And so Houston for example launched innovate Ohio, which is a great platform to try to allow innovation inside of the government to reach the private sector. So it's an answer to your question but sort of in the inverse you know you say why is technology ubiquitous with consumers but not necessarily within government? In many cases, it is actually available within government. They've spent a lot of time and a lot of our tax dollars deploying certain technologies. The problem is they're not experts in figuring out how to let us as consumers use their technology. But the government doesn't really want to stand in the way of business, at least good governments don't. I'm sure there are some States that maybe their government is more geared to do that than others, but at least in Ohio, they're not, they want to make sure that all this money that they've spent, all the tax dollars they spent on their systems, that it's available to the private sector to leverage so that the private sector can be successful so that Ohio can become a thoroughfare for the country. And, you know, that's the, what, what doesn't exist. There aren't a ton of players that actually sit between the consumers and the government. and uh, and take the time to really work and understand what the government has and what's available and and make that inversely available back to the the consumers or the companies that need to conduct these processes, right? So titling is a government process, but you could fill out a form and work with the government, but the government actually does have some technological capabilities and most states have done this to enable a path to communicate with them electronically. It's a question of how you build your own technology to take advantage of that, and we've just reimagined the way that we've done it uh, relative to the industry,
1: and that winds up making us a good bit more efficient than what else is out there. So So having identified this issue of titleship and, and the management of that process and having recognized that it hadn't changed in, in decades at that point, what was the steps from there, having identified the problem to working towards you know a value add solution what what is in your mind at that point did like the mvp for champ titles look like and how did you think about having understood that this industry has not changed in many many years what was like in your mind the moment of inertia for this industry what were you going to do at champ to affect change working with governments
0: well I, the the first thing was to figure out how to explain our technology right the story of of what any software company or technology company does is is almost as important as their their first product release, right? It's explaining it to people so they get it. Because generally, if you're changing the way or reimagining the way that some old stodgy process might get done, it's tough for people to consume, right? At first, they're like, well, no, you can't do it that way, right? So then we show them a few transactions and they'd say, wait a minute, hold on. You just did that. How did that happen? And it's really about showing them. So, you know, unfortunately, and and this is where maybe we broke our own rule. In order to build the technology, you could build it in one of two ways. You could build a, a minimally viable product, and then go and and show in a in a very small way how it could be deployed. And then you could go convince you know a bunch of investors to put in a bunch of money and say we're going to make it big. We, we took a bit of a different approach. We actually spent a lot of our own money up front and it's a lot it was a lot of our own money up front on building a a true product right really actually saying here's the product so our mvp was like release 1 it was here we go like turn it on and that's a risk, right? That's, a, that's an entrepreneurial risk that is tough for people to stomach. We happen to have the, the capital in the background that we were fortunate enough to be able to do it. Now we've got great investors alongside of us that are helping us grow and build the company to bigger heights. But we took a differentiated approach of not really building an MVP. We really went straight to product because we believed in it so much. And we believe too that the consumers of this wouldn't believe it until they saw it, right? Government is by their nature, uh, risk averse, right? And, and we're, we sell into insurance companies. They're even more risk averse. And so uh, you're selling into the two most risk averse buyers out there. You can't show them a PowerPoint and a nifty clickable demo and think they're going to buy it, right? It's got to be real deal stuff and that's expensive. And so we spent the money to go do it. And it's not the path that I necessarily would recommend to every entrepreneur out there, but it's the path that we chose because we took a bet that that's what the market would need to see.
1: Yeah, I would love to dive a little deeper on that one, especially just in my own past having tried to sell to secretaries of state offices and understanding that risk firsthand. I think we always encountered uh, this problem as a startup selling to governments. Uh, it's really a catch-22 where in order to get the buy-in of a secretary of state office or a government organization that I wanted to work with you, you needed some kind of reference of having done it already. But in order to ever have a reference, you needed some government institution to have bought into what you're doing. And so for a startup, that's a really hard thing to, to surmount. And so when you kind of forego the MVP process and, and just you know focus on on what you were building and the vision that you had, what were you doing to kind of, on the business development side, kind of plant the seeds with your future customers to get them on board with what you were doing?
0: Yeah, I mean, our, our first com- customers weren't government, right? So our, our first customers were in the private sector, arguably, you know, a little bit easier to find folks that might take a, a bet on you in the private sector than in government because of that risk averse nature that I mentioned. Um, so we were able to sort of show in the in the private sector that that ours worked and our approach to government was always, it was, well, let me put it this way, it was never to go alone. If I worked in government... And I had my my job and my job was to protect the citizens of our state with making sure that they get the best available services and that things don't break and that things work well and things are affordable. If I took that job seriously as a government employee, it would be difficult for me to be super comfortable just saying to a startup that came in with no partner or no no entity alongside of it that, yeah, I'm going to take this risk because that's not necessarily their job their job is to deploy the best technology and you know those huge risks aren't always rewarded in government if you take them they might be rewarded for the politician but they may not be rewarded for the government employee and so you know being sensitive to that because it's a very difficult job that the the folks in government have you know, being sensitive to that, we, we realized we had to, you know, make sure that there were other advocates that were already in the space, that were already deployed in government, that were already contracted with the government that advocated for our inclusion. So the the, the buy-in came from, well, I'm not buying a product from a startup. I'm here with others who are advocating for this, who have a material stake and support this company. So, you know, that was, a, a, again, a bit of a different uh, business development approach in that, you know, we're not, not really going in there asking them to take a bet on us. We're saying, hey, here's our, our product in the private sector. Here's the way it works. Uh, here are our partners in your world. And here's what we believe we can do for you working with them. So in business, generally referred to as a channel sales approach.
1: Yeah, it was one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about. I was curious the degree to which you have kind of thought through, do you need the buy-in of all those parties that you kind of laid out a few minutes ago at once? Or can you kind of incrementally working with a few of those in the private sector, with the government, with the insurance companies, just kind of work with each of those individually to, to kind of shift from you know, this paper to a to digital process? Or does it require this collective buy-in at once? Well, it's like the old
0: adage, uh, how do you eat an elephant? Uh, one bite at a time right? So you can't, you can't eat the whole thing at once. I I think it's attractive to think that there's some sort of big bang solution that you can convince the whole world that you've got a better answer. But when you look at any game changing technology, whether it's, you know, web or email or conversion of the horse and buggy to a car, it didn't happen because everybody woke up and was like, oh yeah, we should all buy cars today. I mean, it took years right there's all those famous pictures of the horse and buggy eventually you know being not the majority on the road but to being the minority on the road it, it took time so you know we go piece by piece by piece and 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 you know it, it's going to continue to take time that that's uh, that's the nature of any venture venture-backed company is that you know your process doesn't just solve itself in a day and everyone becomes addicted to it it, it's proven over and over again, you have to hope you don't fail and you have to do all the things with your security and, and with your with your company and your personnel to make everyone very comfortable that you're the reliable source for this newfound technology that they will very quickly rely heavily on, right? And that's the shift is that people believe, you know, that, that paper is somehow more reliable. Well, I can tell you, and I'm sure you can too, countless stories of where paper fails, right? We, Look at voting. Like look how many times paper voting fails. It's not more reliable than a digital secure record of what goes on and, and people worry about the security of, of, of what's digital. But the reality is when you're deploying a thing like blockchain, one of the big benefits is the the traceability of it, right? It's an immutable ledger where every transaction is recorded. So, you know, I always think it's hilarious, for example, when when criminals somehow use, you know, some Form a blockchain and think they won't eventually get caught. The folks in law enforcement love blockchain because eventually they can figure out exactly who was you, who the user was. Right? It's 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 all traced. So when when you look at technology and moving away from paper, the comfort of paper was that you could somehow go back and audit it. Well, I get that you don't necessarily believe you can audit technology until. Blockchain came around and really had some level of of true adoption in the world because blockchain is that immutable, auditable ledger that makes this better than paper, and that's where we are. In the same way that email, by the way, is—it's far easier for me to look back ten years and see who emailed me about a particular topic than it is to search through a filing cabinet and figure out who sent me a letter in 2011, right? I can. Very quickly search my inbox and figure out precisely who that was in 2011, what the topic was and what they stated. And it's very clear. We became reliant on email as a replacement for the letter. Now we're becoming reliant on technologies like blockchain as a replacement for paper.
1: Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I do want to ask you about blockchain here. So one of the things that I have found is that it's sufficiently hard to sell, to sell anything. As it is, but add on top of that the burden of educating people on something in addition to selling them on something, it, it it becomes really very challenging. And I am curious as you pitch, as you sell, as you market the product that you're building at Champ Titles, the the role that blockchain plays there. And because you know, one of the things at my own company that that we kind of hear a, a, is pushback often. There's a, a combative skepticism that we almost get sometimes from even even mentioning the word blockchain and and the whole you know series of connotations that people have and, and associate with it and so i'm curious how you go about communicating with regards to the underlying tech like does it even matter or is it more just about like what is the experience benefit for the end users of the of the product how how do you kind of navigate that pushback and skepticism and and all that that kind of stuff
0: well you know my recommendation to anyone in the blockchain world is to not lead with blockchain, right? It is, it's sufficiently confusing. Um, It often gets uh, somehow intertwined with cryptocurrency, even though one is just an application on top of the other, you know, cryptocurrency is an application of a way to use blockchain. But whenever you're trying to convince someone that your product should be something they use, leading with the underlying technology is likely not a good way to sell. Right. No one's leading with email by explaining how email gets from my phone all the way over to your phone. Right. If you actually spent the time to explain how an email made it from my phone to your phone, you know, through this connection, that router, this switch through this satellite down to back down to earth, over to the landline, it gets to you, then bounces back up to a Wi-Fi. Like no one's going to follow you, nor should they. It's kind of pointless. They don't care. They're like, does the email get from here to me? Yes, it does. Isn't that great? It happens instantaneously. You're not talking about the underlying technology. You're talking about the effect on them. The, the effect on someone in our community of the title world is to say your titles will not be processed in 50 days, but in one or less than one or minutes. And, you know, when if you get if they dig in eventually and say, well, how do you do this? Well, you explain the digitization process. Well, how do you digitize? Now you're probably in your second or third meeting with the tech people and they're saying, well, OK, what's where do you store the data? Oh, we use blockchain. It's amazing because by the time you get to that technical buyer in any sale, they actually know all about it. They don't need to be educated on it. It's the same way that if you were trying to sell that email system, they would say, oh, okay, well, I know how that works. I know how it goes from the, my phone to a router to a switch to over to the landline back, you know, whatever I said before. And it's the same, right? By the time we get to that buyer, their knowledge of blockchain is sufficient. They're, like, oh, they're, they're comforted. They're like, oh, that's a great way to store this data, title data that records who owns what. Yeah, I want to put it on the most sophisticated ledger available in the world today, the most secure ledger available in the world today. It makes perfect sense you would use that. And then they say, thanks, and they move on. Because the, it's, not, it's the sexy part, but it's not what you would lead with. What we're trying to solve is that titling is a paper-based process, that doesn't have a lot of digital conduits available to, to the community members. And they need that in order to process their titles and move their titles faster. It saves them money. It saves the earth from printing all that paper. It saves cars from sitting in salvage yards and leaking oil and bad things into the ground because they get the title faster and sell the car faster. It's good for them because they 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 get to sell their asset and move their asset faster. It's good for the banks because it's a better customer experience. That's what you're talking about. That's what we solve. The fact that we use blockchain is nifty and and it's incredibly important to the security of what we do, but it's not what we lead with. And I always tell people in, in this space that are using blockchain as, as part of their solution, I don't see the value in leading with it.
1: Yeah. What is the the current state of champ titles? Like, where where are you guys at? How large are you? What what are the products you have in the market? Of those players that you outlined earlier, who are you selling to? What's the, the lay of the land, if you will? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, we're uh, we're expanding rapidly. So we haven't announced our headcount
0: yet, but in the very short uh, order, we probably. Well, we will be doing that. There's also an announcement coming out in the next couple of weeks about the growth of our company and some, some new big partners that we're bringing into our world. So, so look for that. So I'll, I'll keep some of those details uh, as a teaser for people to maybe check out our website or, or follow us on social media and, and see what we release in the next few weeks. But what's exciting for us is that uh, we've, we've built up a bevy of customers inside of the insurance community, inside of the government community, inside of the retail community, and we're excited to be able to give those customers a faster way to process their titles. So, you know, we've been, the product's been live for a little less than a year now, just barely a little less than a year. Uh, it's working exceptionally well. We have some very pleased clients. And right now we're trying to add as many people as we can because the demand for what we're doing is outstripping uh, the number of hours in a day that we have available to us. So I think it's a similar problem to what you're seeing at your successful company. You know, you've got to you've got to figure out how to match the demand with the talent. And thankfully, you know, we've got some great people on the team that are helping us grow and build. So we're really excited about what the future holds.
1: Yeah, no, it is it is exciting. Maybe we can talk about something you know that is that is public and out there as maybe a proxy for for some of the the developments you have coming. But I, I saw you have you know established this partnership with Copart. Which you know, for for the audience, you know, explain who they are and and the significance of that partnership, but Love to understand, you know, how that how that how that came to be, and and how you're thinking about, you know, expansion into the market, um, in the context of those kinds of of partnerships going forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in the uh, salvage world, so cars get salvaged when there's a bad accident. You see it on the highway, unfortunately, and the car is totaled. Total is another word for a car being salvaged, or a natural disaster like a flood, or a hurricane, or hail, or something like that. There are only a, a small cadre of players who resell salvaged cars in the United States. There are a handful of companies, really only a, a few of them, that over the years have bought up salvage yards. So you, you might see them kind of on back roads or off of highways and sort of unpopular strips of land that are, are used then or bought by these companies to house cars after one of these natural disasters or accidents. Those are salvage yards, and those salvage yards are only owned by a handful of companies in this country, and those handful of companies sell those cars on behalf of the entities that take ownership of the cars. So insurance companies take ownership over a salvage vehicle whenever they've insured a car that got in one of those bad accidents or a a natural disaster. Because unlike a typical insurance claim, like where if you are in a fender bender, uh, you pay your deductible and the insurance company sends you some money and you go to a collision shop and you get your car repaired, or they pay the collision shop directly with, with a total vehicle or salvage vehicle. Uh, they're actually buying your car from you. They're saying, here's a check for your car. And that now your your piece of metal that was you know, materially damaged is ours. And they want to sell that car as quickly as possible, because that's the only way to recoup any of the money that they gave you as part of the claim. And so selling it as quickly as possible is crucial to the, their economic success. And uh, Copart is the largest play in the United States in the salvage space. So it's a great partnership for us in that Copart is a fantastic publicly traded company based out of Dallas, Texas, run by some really great executives who have built that company up. One of the... Uh, CEO and chairman and CEO is actually related to the founder. So it's still like, you know, it feels like a hmm. family company. They're a really fun culture to be around. They've built this company up uh, over the last few decades and done a magnificent job doing so. And one of the, the things they want to solve for their, their insurance customers is how to move these cars faster. And uh, and our technology is something that um, we believe is helpful to, to them in the insurance community. And we're lucky to have them as partners
1: yeah no, that, that is really exciting in terms of kind of outcomes to the degree that you're able to talk about that like what what have you seen as a consequence of of people using the product and and kind of deploying it and, and getting it out there a few things
0: on the on the purely economic front what's what's great is when uh, an insurance carrier tells us how much money we're saving them, right They're looking at it and saying i used to, <laughs> yeah. I, I used to and and by, by the way insurance companies aren't taking this money and putting it in their pocket what's neat about the insurance business is that the insurance world is highly competitive right you only need to turn on your television for 15 minutes um, <laughs> normal television not commercialist streaming i mean like old school normal television or youtube tv or whatever until you'll see in 15 minutes I don't know seven insurance commercials, right? Uh, Jake from State Farm, the Geico, the Affleck duck, uh, the Emu. Like we, we all know these. Like they're part of our, our of our viewing pleasure. And they're so competitive. So what they do when they, when they make extra money uh, on something like this is they plow it right back into reducing their premiums for their customers. So, um, we're delighted that we help reduce premiums by making an inefficient process, more efficient for the carriers because it drives prices down for, for consumers everywhere. Uh, so that's the first thing on a purely economic standpoint. And, And, you know, they're delighted too, because they've fronted all this money on a salvage transaction. Now they're getting it back faster. The second thing is is a benefit that I don't think we ever envisioned when we created the company, but we're delighted by, which is there's an environmental benefit, right? So I, I mentioned the, the the reduction in the number of trees that get cut down to make paper and the, the processing of paper, which is obviously not uh, not super environmental friendly, environmentally friendly. But the, the reduction in that is obviously uh, something we're, we're proud of as a company that focuses on digitizing a paper-based process. But it's also the the faster those cars cycle through a salvage yard, the less they're sitting there leaking oil and other things that can damage the earth. And you know, Copart doesn't want that. We don't want that. No other company wants that. Um, everyone's always struggling to try to do better you know these are very thoughtful eco-friendly companies that are trying to do their best in a in a, a non-eco-friendly unfortunate transaction like your car being in a big accident or being you know in a natural disaster and so you, you know when that when, when we can solve that and, and allow those cars to move faster and a, and a reduction to the damage to the earth it's great for us like we didn't we didn't set out to do that but we were, you know it's part of our part of our core sets of belief now that this is one of the ways we drive value back to not only our customers but to the world, and that makes us happy and proud. And I, I hope the the folks at Champ Titles are happy and proud of that too, because we're adding to the the value proposition every day with every car that we can move faster through the titling process.
1: When you think back to those idea in inception days and and coming up with an idea that that had this burden to to entry. I'm not sure. Like, uh, how is competition in this space? Is there a competition? Have people, you know, followed suit with what you're doing? Were there players already thinking about the digitization of this of this field? How does that kind of look in, in your outlook? Yeah, you know, there's competition everywhere. It just
0: uh, sometimes manifests itself in in different forms. You know, I think we're lucky to be at the the bleeding edge of this. You know, we have some proprietary intellectual property that we believe protects a lot of what we've created, uh, if not all of what we've created so, yeah, there are there are traditional players that are in the paper-based world that are disrupted by what we're doing. So I would regard them as competitors. But you know interestingly enough, a number of those a number of those companies, you know we also look to partner with, right? we're 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 trying to drive value back to uh, this this ecosystem. And so for many of those those uh, those companies, uh, they have other business units that would benefit from uh, what we do, right? And and that uh, that's the uniqueness of this title landscape. It, there aren't a lot of players in it, and so when a new player pops up like us, um, you know, we we catch a lot of eyeballs. And I think our view is, you know, we're. Yes, everybody competes in some way, right? If we're disrupting an old process and and making an adjustment that they'll have to, you know, work their change management around. Um, but there's also an opportunity to partner. So for any competitors that are listening, uh, give me a call. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, <laughs> and uh, I, I promise there's probably a way we can partner.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's fun to hear. Has the vision changed in terms of how you're thinking about this space with the progress that you're making? Has the direction shifted at all? Or, or you know, what is the impact ultimately that, that you would like to have with this company looking back? The only part of the vision that has, I think, materially changed is that it's
0: turning out we can move a lot faster than we originally anticipated. Uh, a lot of that's due to having a great team. Uh, we hire the smartest, best, most capable people we can find. Uh, anywhere in the in the world and we're very fortunate to be able to have you know a great group of, of folks that we've been able to bring together and we've recognized that we can go a lot faster than we thought and that the industry is moving a lot faster than we thought you know there the the willingness to adopt uh, digitization processes was at first thrown on its head by covid like like any company we were so worried as a as a young company when something like that stalls the entire economy What's going to happen, and we were damaged by it. But, but you know, coming out of it uh, now, on the other side, you're looking and saying, okay, what this has changed is that people, you know, hopefully people are being healthy and doing the things to protect their health. But they're saying, you know what, I, I don't really want to go to the DMV. I don't really want to touch paper and you know send it all the way around sign, sign things and not know where it's going to go or who's going to see it. You know, I'd rather have a digital track record of what I'm doing. And because they've gotten very accustomed to having a digital track record of what they're doing, they can see every Zoom call they've been on for the last year and a half. And they know exactly who they talked to and when and for how long. And sometimes they recorded them. You know, it's rare that you you can do that in life. But now for the last year and a half, everything has essentially been uh, digitized. There's this opportunity now in the marketplace where the marketplace is saying, you know, "I, I, I, I want to adopt this faster. So what's changed is our speed right? And and we're excited for our investors and for our employees and for our customers that we can move even faster than what we thought.
1: Yeah, it definitely, I think across the board, we've uh, felt this accelerant of, of technological adoption. And you feel there is a longevity and a staying power to it. it it's not a temporary shift in in people's habits and behavior.
0: Well, hey, listen, I I, I, I love my mother, uh, but she's a she's a great forward-looking indicator of whether people will adopt technology or not. If you'd asked my mom, you know, 20 months ago, hey, mom, you know, do you want to do a FaceTime call with your grandchildren? She'd be like, ah, I never really kind of get that right. I'm not always sure how to do it. I don't know where to put the camera, blah, blah, blah. I just talk to them on the phone. Now she's like, she'll FaceTime the kids. She'll get on with them (laughs) on her own. She knows exactly where to put it, how to position the lights, where the microphone's going to be, you know, and you're talking about someone in uh, advanced age, protect my mother's age. Um, But, you know, that's become commonplace, right? People have learned how we're, the human race is fantastically intelligent. And the idea that they won't adapt goes completely against like any thought that humans haven't adapted. Of course we've adapted. And this is just an, adapt- an adaption that we had to make in rapid order. We all had to make it. And th- in this case, it wasn't like, you know, getting out of having webbed feet or something. It was like, oh, we're adapting to a world that is now technologically forward because it has to be. And then when you start using it for a while, besides the whole scary you know, big tech is tracking me, watching me sort of fear, which is probably real. You get the, oh my God, it's actually a lot easier to kind of like use this thing, this thing called a phone or this thing called a computer. And if I use it well, it's got a lot of power to make my life better. And I can digitize things. I don't need to sign paper. I can sign online. I can make my life a lot easier. And that's being adopted at an incredibly rapid rate right now.
1: Yeah. I've re- I realized in retrospect, kind of a silly question. I don't know anyone who has is- particularly excited to go to the DMV and would love for that to stay the case.
0: (laughs) It's amazing
1: how, if you look at the top
0: priorities of most governors in the country, almost all of them have fixing the DMV in their top 10. And it's not because the people at DMV did like anything wrong or were bad or didn't do their job. It's just hard to process all that paper, right? There's so many things that come through the DMV your driver's license, your titling records, your, your voter registration in some states, like so many pieces of paper plow through there. And there's only so much time in the day. People can only process so much and paper leads to errors because people fill it out incorrectly. They they get lazy and forget to check a box and then they have to circle back or it gets denied and they got to wait in line again. And it's not always the government's fault. But now there are tools that are available to make it better. And we're making one of those tools, right? To fix title and registration across the country.
1: Yeah, well, I, I am excited about the, the work you're doing as a, you know, as, a, as someone, a, <laughs> owners of vehicles title, it really is a disastrous consumer experience. And so be very excited about the world where the vision you have has transpired. So <laughs> best, best of luck to you guys, I hope. The growth continues.
0: Thank you very much. We, 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 uh, we're we looking forward to uh, the next phases, and I'm always delighted when uh, someone had a better title transaction and it had to do with our tech. So uh, hopefully more and more people across the country can enjoy that soon.
1: I hope so. Well, our one of our, our closing questions here that uh, we ask everyone coming on the, the show is to paint a collage, not necessarily of people's favorite things in Cleveland, but of things that other people may not know about, hidden gems, if you will. And I'm also curious, you know, as, as, a, as a fellow New Yorker, Cleveland resident here, you know, what, what, are, those, what are those hidden gems to you?
0: Uh, you know, and when we were in New York, uh, my wife and I loved uh, to Experiment with different restaurants, and you know there's always a bevy of new ones popping up seemingly weekly. Probably a little less frequent here in Ohio, but I think it's it's about finding those uh, those gems. You know, I I love the restaurant uh, Luca on the viaduct. Mm -hmm. They happen to be in in our in our office building. Believe it or not, they're the top floor, and we have a lower floor. You know, I'm really just saying that because I. I could use a discount there. Um, I spend more too much time uh, But uh, just fantastic Italian food, great experience, wonderful run organization, and, uh, and a great spot to see all the wonderful architecture of Cleveland, the bridges, the downtown and the like. You know, similarly, we found uh, a few small little places. Uh, I love SARS place and Gates Mills a uh, little tiny restaurant run by a wonderful group of people makes delicious food and, and it's off the beaten path you know you're driving through this quaint little town you couldn't possibly imagine that there'd be a great restaurant there but there it is it's the only restaurant around for miles <laughs> and there's probably a, a few others uh, if if you're up in in i think it's in willoughby uh maybe willoughby hills there's a mexican place called cocos locos i hope Not too many people go there and ruin what I think is the best best (laughs) Mexican in, in, in Northeast Ohio, but it's fantastic and it's run by, again, great people. And maybe that's the common thread here is when you've got great people running these places, I don't know, the food just tastes better, the experience is better, and and for me, so much of food is what's the experience like? What's the service level like? Are they friendly? Are they nice? Do they skimp on the chips and the saucer? Do they keep loading it up until you're full? And you're wondering <laughs> why you're ordering dinner. Yeah, you know, so there's these great places. And it's so great now that, you know, so many people are vaccinated and healthy and able to get back to restaurants that you're able to go back and enjoy these places. And, and restaurants probably took it harder than anybody during this, uh, this pandemic. And, and I really hope that people are getting back to not only ordering, but eating in and tipping well.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, agreed there. Well, Shane, I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, sharing your story. It's been, uh, like I mentioned, I, I really was excited to learn more about the champ titles journey and, and how it's transpired and, and the, the work that you've been able to accomplish over the last few years. So thank you very much for, uh, for coming on. No, thanks for having me.
0: Uh, it really is a pleasure. It's great. I love I love the focus on technology in this part of the country. You're, you're doing a, a great job to promote it. So thanks for having me.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. If folks have anything, competitors, you know, future job prospects, whoever it is, if if anyone has anything they'd like to to follow up with you about, what is the best place for them to reach you?
0: LinkedIn is certainly going to be the easiest way. So just go there, send me a direct message. I will happily join up with you. I'm super easy to find Shane McCran Bigelow is my full name. So Shane Bigelow will probably find you. Me and Champ Titles, you'll find me on LinkedIn.
1: That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe. J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with The Up Company, LLC.